by the end of 2017, I started to feel like the economy was slowing down. I recognized that the cycle that we were in, that cycle that started just after 2008, was getting kind of old. Typically, economic cycles from, from peak to trough last about six or seven years. And we were, we were close to eight or nine years in at the time. So I recognized that there was a reasonable chance that we were headed towards a downturn sometime in the next couple of years. I didn't know exactly when it is. Nobody has a crystal ball. Um, but I suspected that 2018, 19, 20, uh, things would start to slow down and, and we would see uh, a correction in the economy. And that would probably have some impact on real estate. So I asked myself the question, where do I want to be when the market starts to turn? And the first answer I came up with is, I don't want to be flipping houses. Doing transactional real estate, non-cash flowing real estate during a downturn is never a, a good business model, simply because you're buying high and the market goes down, you have to sell low. Podcast is sponsored by our course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals. Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals is a 10 week online course focused on helping physicians and high income earners go from knowing little to nothing about real estate investing to confidently buying the cashflowing rentals that will allow them to achieve financial freedom and work in medicine or their day jobs on their own terms. Our course is only open to registration twice a year, so be sure to get on the waitlist at semiretiredmd.com and check out the course details on our course landing page. Are you interested in learning more about owning your own portfolio cash flowing rentals? If so, we invite you to take our free mini course, the Crash Course in Cash Flowing Rentals. When you take our mini course, you'll learn the strategies we use to build our portfolio. You'll also get to see several of our students featured who have successfully built their own portfolios as well. To take our Crash Course, link to semiretiredmd.com forward slash mini course, M-I-N-I dash C-O-U-R-S-E, or visit our website at semiretiredmd.com and link to the crash course on cash flowing rentals there. You may also want to join the waitlist for our introductory course, Zero to Freedom Through Cash Flowing Rentals, while you're at our website too. We'll see you there. Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, a place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. In this episode, we share an exclusive interview with Jay Scott from our Fast Fire to Freedom Virtual Summit, which was held in August 2022. To sign up for our free virtual summit, go to semiretiredmd.com forward slash summit. Jay has a wealth of real estate experience and is the author of several books, including Recession-Proof Real Estate Investing and the book on estimating rehab costs. He and his wife started investing in 2008 and flipped over 400 homes between 2008 and 2016. After years of house flipping, he transitioned to investing in large multifamily properties. This move was prompted by a study of economic cycles. He realized that flipping houses or transactional real estate, as he called it, wasn't a good investment during a downturn. In contrast, he saw that multifamily properties perform well during downturns, and it was a great way to build wealth. This is exactly why we invest in multifamily properties and teach others how to do it as well. Okay, with that, here's Jay. We're very excited and fortunate to have Jay Scott here joining us. Hey, Jay, welcome. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Jay, we are so excited to have you here. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your background? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I come from the corporate tech world. I'm, I'm an engineer by trade, got my MBA um, about 20, about 20 years ago. Spent most of my career in Silicon Valley in the tech world, worked for Microsoft, eBay. My wife took the same path. We met in 2008, decided to get married. And when we decided to get married, we kind of wanted to leave the 80-hour the work weeks behind and figure out a way that we could put our family first, put our relationship first, but obviously still continue to make money and, and thrive financially. So 2008, we left our corporate jobs. We moved from the West Coast to the East Coast. And long story short, we fell into house flipping. And between 2008 and 2016-ish, we flipped about 400 houses. Um, and we got pretty good at it. We, we enjoyed it for a decent part of that, that time. Um, I wrote a few books on the topic. Uh, and then around 2016, I was getting burned out. Didn't feel like flipping houses anymore. It became a chore um, after a few hundred of them. Just I needed something new and different. And so I, I started writing a book in 2016 called what ended up being called Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. And it was basically a deep dive into the uh, into uh, macroeconomics, macroeconomic cycles, and how they impact us as real estate investors. And while writing that book, what I realized was that um, that throughout different phases of the economic cycle, there are different real estate asset classes, different niches, different business uh, models that tended to work better than others. And so this was 2016. By this time, it was probably 2017 uh, by the time I was kind of through the book. And, and by the end of 2017, I started to feel like the economy was slowing down. I recognized that the cycle that we were in, that cycle that started just after 2008, was getting kind of old. Typically, economic cycles from, from peak to trough last about six or seven years. And we were, we were close to eight or nine years in at the time. So I recognized that there was a reasonable chance that we were headed towards a downturn sometime in the next couple of years. I didn't know exactly when it is. Nobody has a crystal ball. Um, but I suspected that 2018, 19, 20, uh, things would start to slow down and, and we would see uh, a correction in the economy. And that would probably have some impact on real estate. So I asked myself the question, where do I want to be when the market starts to turn? And the first answer I came up with is, I don't want to be flipping houses. Doing transactional real estate, non-cash flowing real estate during a downturn is never a, a good business model, simply because you're buying high and the market goes down, you have to sell low. If you're generating cash flow during that time, well, you can weather the storm, you can wait a few years and sell, but flipping, you're typically not generating any cash flow. So through all my research, I looked at a lot of different asset classes, everything from flipping houses to single family rentals, to land, to lending, to commercial real estate. And what I ultimately settled on was large multifamily. So my research indicated to me that during recessionary periods, um, and especially coincidentally during periods of high inflation, multifamily real estate tends to be the most consistent results, consistent returns, but it also tends to be the best hedge. It's the best way to mitigate risk during these economic downturns. And we can go into reasons why that is. But long story short, I decided I wanted to be a multifamily investor. So 2018-ish rolls around. I reached out to a friend of mine, Ashley Wilson, who had been uh, doing large multifamily syndications for a number of years. Uh, and I asked her to help teach me the business. Um, I basically said, if, if, if you'll teach me the business, if you'll mentor me, I'll work for you for free for a year. Um, so through second half of 2018, beginning of 2019, I basically interned for her and her company, learned a lot, was very impressed with, with what they were doing. Turns out we had a very complementary set of skills. And in 2020, we decided to partner up. We started a company called Bar Down Investments. 
Uh, we currently have a little over 1,100 units under management, a little over 100 million assets under management, um, and we're focused on multifamily syndication. And given where the market is today, um, I think it was the right move, and, and, and I'm very comfortable moving forward uh, owning a lot of multifamily units, whereas if I were doing other things, if I were doing land, if I were doing flipping, if I were doing single-family rentals, if I were doing lending, I may not be as comfortable as I am right now. So let's talk about that. So first, can you kind of define those cycles that you saw and why you think multifamily compared to anything else is so strong? So typically speaking, in, in, from, in economic terms, we, we often talk about four different parts of the economic cycle. And the, the first part of the cycle, and kind of the probably the most important here, um, is that run-up um, at the end of a recession, you basically have an expansion in the economy. And let's think back to 2008, 9, 10, 11. We're coming out of the Great Recession, and things are starting to get a little bit better. People are making more money again. Companies are hiring. Businesses are hiring. Wages might be going up a little bit. Everybody's feeling a little bit more comfortable than they did after 2007, 8, and 9. And over the next couple of years, through I guess 2012, 13, 14, the economy's doing well. Everything's slowly getting better. Businesses are, are, are growing. People are making more money. People are starting to spend more money. So they're now buying more clothes and they're going out to restaurants more. They're buying new cars. They're buying houses. They're traveling more. Everybody's getting more comfortable. As people start to spend money, what do businesses need to do? They need to expand. So if a restaurant is half occupied during 2009, 10, 11, well, they don't need to hire new employees. They don't need to buy a lot more food. They don't need to hire a new line cook. But by 2013, 14, 15, suddenly the restaurant's busy every night. And the owner sees this as an opportunity. They can buy a larger space. They can hire more waitresses and a hostess and, and line cooks. They can expand their menu. Car dealerships can start buying more cars. and Airlines can, can start flying more planes. Basically, businesses see an opportunity to grow. There's a lot more demand, and businesses want to satisfy that demand. But what do businesses have to do if they want to grow and satisfy more demand? They need to spend money. They need to hire more people. They need to buy more equipment. They might need to buy warehouses or places to store their inventory. They're going to buy more inventory. They might buy more, more tools. They might, who knows? They have to spend money to grow. And when businesses start spending money to grow, they're not just going to eat that cost. They're going to pass that cost on to consumers. So when you go to buy something, you go into a restaurant, let's say, and that restaurant is twice as busy as it was a couple of years earlier, because the restaurant needed to expand and buy more space and hire more people, you're now paying more for your meal. And when you're buying that car because the Toyota had to buy three new manufacturing plants and hire 300 more people to build cars, you're now paying more for that car. What do we call that? That's inflation. So the price of stuff going up is inflation. And typically, we think of inflation as a bad thing, but inflation is, a, is a, a symptom of actually something that's really good. It's a symptom of a growing economy. It's a symptom of people spending lots of money. So as we get towards the top of the economic cycle, as we get towards the peak, what we saw back in 1999, what we saw in 2005 and 2006, everything's going really well, but we're starting to see inflation. We're starting to see prices creep up. And the government doesn't like to see prices creep up, especially not quickly, because that's really bad for consumers. If things get too expensive too quickly, we stop spending money as consumers. And when consumers stop spending money, everything collapses. So what the government says is, let's figure out a way to put the brakes on this inflation. And we have this organization in, in, in our country, a, a quasi-private, quasi-governmental organization called the Federal Reserve. And basically, this is an organization that's tasked with 
controlling our economy so that things don't happen too quickly in any direction. And they do this through two means. They have the ability to control how much money is being released into the system, and they have the ability to control interest rates. So using money supply and interest rates, the Federal Reserve says, okay, things are overheating. The economy is doing too well. Inflation's out of control. We're going to slow it down. And they do that through two means. One, um, they take money out of the system. They basically say, okay, we want there to be less money for people to spend. So now people are spending less money and, and obviously there's less demand and, and businesses slow down, um, which means inflation slows down. But number two, the big thing that they do is they raise interest rates. And when they raise interest rates, two things happen. First, so when it becomes more expensive to buy things, people buy less stuff. When it's more expensive to buy a car, they buy fewer cars. When it's more expensive to, to buy things on a credit card because credit card rates are high, they buy fewer things on credit cards. So number one, raising rates means people are going to spend less money. But number two, it also means that the, the interest you're going to get in a savings account goes up. So people are going to start to save more money. So by raising interest rates, the Federal Reserve is able to get people to spend less money and save more money. Well, what does that do? That starts to slow the economy. Businesses now don't have as much business. They can't expand. They have less, they're, they're selling less inventory. So what are they going to do? They're going to start laying people off. They're going to stop buying equipment. They're going to stop buying machinery. Um, they're going to cut people's hours. They're going to cut wages. And so when we get to the top of this economic cycle where the Federal Reserve says, hey, we have to slow down inflation, what they typically do is they overcorrect and they slow things down too much. And now businesses are seeing so much less business that they have to start cutting and they're making less money and everybody's kind of getting into a bad spot. And that's kind of the beginning of a recession. And this is going to snowball. So as people start to lose their jobs, well, now they're not making money. They're not making money. They can't spend money. So now not only are people unemployed, but they're spending less money so that other businesses aren't doing well. And we get into this economic downward spiral that we call a recession. Eventually, the Federal Reserve realizes that they have to do something about this. So they kind of take the opposite route. They lower interest rates. And at this point, it becomes more advantageous to borrow. We can now buy a car for cheap because interest rates are lower. We can buy a house for cheaper because interest rates are lower. Businesses can borrow money for cheaper so that they can start buying more equipment and expanding again. And so we, we kind of start that cycle over. We, we reignite the economy and, and we hit a bottom and we go back up the other side. And this cycle kind of continues throughout history. And over the last 150 years, we've actually seen 34 of these cycles. 34 times we've seen basically a, a peak, a recession, and then a recovery. And so a lot of people think, especially people that started investing after 2008, they think it's pretty common to go through 10 or 11 or 12 years of economic expansion and things going really well. But historically, it's actually closer to five or six years. So if you were paying attention, if, if you're old like me, or you were paying attention back in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, what you'll find is we go through these recessions actually pretty often. Now, very few of them are like 2008. They're not major crashes where everything comes crumbling down and, and, and the world's on fire. But we do see these, these, these recessions where the stock market goes down and maybe housing goes down and maybe other assets go down and, and, and the value of the dollar might go up or down. But, but we see the, these, these cycles over and over and over. So when we see a recession, we shouldn't think, oh, no, this is the end of the world. We should think this is a natural part of the cycle. And we should be thinking, what can we do? Because we've seen this 34 times in the last 150 years, people have figured out how to survive the recession. There are a lot of wealthy people in this country, and those people have been wealthy for many, many, many decades. 
uh, many generations. And so they figured out how to weather this storm. So what are they doing? Well, real estate tends to be a great way to weather that storm. And certain types of real estate tends to be even better way to weather that storm. So let's talk about some of the things that, that we go through in the midst of that recessionary storm. Number one, we talked about inflation. Mm-hmm. Typically, when we get to the peak of the economic cycle, we start to see inflation. Stocks aren't a great hedge against inflation. So as, as the cost of everything is going up, that's going to hurt businesses. Businesses are going to take a hit and stocks are going to go down. Real estate, on the other hand, tends to be a great hedge against inflation. If you look at the history of real estate, if you look at how much real estate values tend to trend up over time, typically it's about the rate of inflation. So over 100 years, obviously there are going to be outliers if you're investing in San Francisco or LA or New York, maybe you're seeing huge appreciation. But most of the country since the 1930s have seen about 3 or 4% appreciation on their housing which means housing is basically keeping up with inflation. But there's another benefit to housing when it comes to inflation, and that's debt. The fact that uh, housing is one of the best places to accumulate a lot of long-term fixed rate debt that's backed by a physical asset is a huge inflationary hedge. And the reason for that is, let's say I buy a house today and I get a mortgage at, well, today it's going to be closer to 6%. But let's say a couple of weeks ago, I was buying a house and, and I was able to get a 3 or 4% mortgage. And I buy this $200,000 house. I now have a mortgage of, let's say, $2,000 a month. And I start paying this mortgage, $2,000 a month. And let's say I'm making $100,000 a year. So 2% of my wages are going to paying my monthly mortgage every month. Well, over the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot of inflation, let's say. Not even a lot. Maybe we see a little bit. Maybe we see three, four, five percent. Well, typically, inflation not just raises the prices of good, goods and services, it also raises wages. So if inflation is at 5%, I might be making $100,000 this year, but I'm going to make $105,000 next year. And I'm going to make 5% more the year after that and 5% more the year after that. In five or 10 years, I could be making one hundred dollars or $200,000. I'm making more money. What is my mortgage payment? Same. My mortgage payment is still $2,000 a month. Mm-hmm. So I'm making more money, but I'm paying no more for my housing. Basically, I've hedged inflation. Inflation has helped me with my wages and my salary, but it hasn't hurt me on the cost of my housing. So literally the single best inflation hedge in the world is long-term fixed rate debt. And that's why these days you'll see a lot of real estate investors and a lot of non-real estate investors, folks that invest in other things, but are starting to discover real estate because they recognize that with high inflation, the single best hedge is to be buying real estate, real estate with long-term fixed rate debt. This week's podcast is sponsored by our course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals. Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals is a 10-week online course focused on helping physicians and high-income earners go from knowing little to nothing about real estate investing to confidently buying the cashflowing rentals that will allow them to achieve financial freedom and work in medicine or their day jobs on their own terms. Course is only open to registration twice a year, so be sure to get on the waitlist at semiretiredmd.com and check out the course details on our course landing page. This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Movement Mortgage. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. We've been working with Dan and his team for over eight years now, and he's our go to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close the deal. 
I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at srmd at movement.com to get a free consultation. And also let him know that you're part of the Semi-Retired MD community to get an exclusive discount on your next loan. Now back to the episode. So number one, I love real estate because of the long-term fixed rate debt. Number two, real estate generates cash flow if you do it right. And cash flow is the best way to weather the storm. Like I said earlier, if we're flipping houses, well, I could buy a house today for $100,000. If the market goes down, that house could go down to $50,000 tomorrow. I'm not happy about that because now suddenly I'm paying a mortgage on, on an asset that's worth half as much. But let's say that's a rental property or a multifamily property. It might go from $100,000 to $50,000, but I'm still making money every single month, which means I can wait it out. If it's three years before that, the, the value of that property comes back up to $100,000, great. If it's five years, if it's 10 years, I don't care because I'm still making money. For anybody out there that, that hasn't done this, I recommend going onto a website called FRED. And it, it's basically the St. Louis Federal Reserve. They store a whole lot of housing data. And do a search on that, that site. Just search market rents. And it'll bring up a chart of the national average for market rents, housing rents, over the past 100 years or so. And it's a really interesting chart because what you'll see is it only goes in one direction. Over the last 100 years, average national rents only go up. 2008 was actually an anomaly. We see a flat trend for about a year and a half. Didn't go, go down, didn't quite go up. It, it was stayed flat. But over 100 years, you never see a dip in market rents, which means even during 2008, when housing went from, from whatever to 30, 40, 50% less, market rents didn't go down. So people that were not over leveraged, People that had long-term debt, they didn't have their, their, their loans resetting. They had these assets that were generating as much cash flow during the, the worst part of the 2008 recession as it was back in 2004, 5, and 6. So they didn't care if, market, if, if values were dropping. They didn't care if it took two years to recover from 2008 or five years or 10 years because they were making just as much money from their cash flow. They actually started to make more by 2009 and 10 so they could hold that property forever. And that's what I tell people. I say, put your money in cash flow and real estate because yeah, maybe market, the market will drop 50%, but I don't care because I'm still making my cash flow. I'm still able to pay my mortgage because I'm making cash flow. I'm still able to pay for my car loan. I'm still able to pay for my food and my clothes or whatever it is because I'm still making that cash flow. So number two reason why real estate tends to be a great thing to own during a recession is, is the cash flow. So we have hedge against inflation, we have cash flow. Number three is we tend to think of a recession as things just go down. Everything goes down. Stock market goes down. In this case, crypto is going down. The dollar goes down. Whatever you own goes down in value. Well, it turns out that during a lot of recessions, real estate actually doesn't go down in value. 2008 was an exception. 2008 was a real estate-led recession. There were foundational problems in, in the real estate industry that led to the recession in 2008. Real estate got crushed. But if you go back to 2001, you look at the data, housing was barely hit in 2001. You go back to the late 80s, early 90s, housing wasn't hit at all during that recession. So it's not necessarily true that during every recession, real estate is going to get hit. Now, I'm not saying that coming up, real estate is not going to get hit during the next recession. It may, it may not. But 
The fact is, real estate tends to be a lot more resilient to recessions than other asset classes. And I know a lot of us tend to think about 2008, and 2008 was scary, but 2008 over the last 100 years was very much the exception to this recessionary rule. So three reasons I absolutely love real estate during a recession. One, it's a great inflation hedge. Two, it's cash flow and continuing cash flow because market rents stay strong. And three, it's not necessarily true that real estate's even going to go down during a recession. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Nice job. So you've alluded to the fact that you like multifamily versus maybe like single family homes. Can you talk about within multifamily, why multifamily and and what specific things you're looking for in your multifamily? Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I own a lot of single family rentals and I think there are a lot of good things about single family rentals. It's a little bit easier to diversify. Um, you have a little bit more control. They're a little bit easier to sell because you can sell a house a lot easier than you can sell a, a, an apartment complex. Um, but there are certainly things that are really nice about multifamily. The biggest for me is that how do we determine the value of a single family house? We it's- look at all the other similar houses around it. We go by comps. So if all the houses around it and most of the houses around my single family rentals are not rentals, they're houses just owned by people who are living in those houses. If all the, if the value of all the houses around mine goes down, the value of my house is going to go down. doesn't matter if I'm using it as a rental, if I'm living in it, doesn't matter what I'm doing with it because it's comped based on similar houses around it. If the houses around it go down, my house is going to go down. Well, how about my multifamily? My multifamily it's not going to go down just because the houses around it have gone down or the multifamily around it have gone down. There are two things that drive the value of my multifamily. It's the amount of income the property is generating. So NOI, net operating income. And number two, the cap rates. And there's a simple formula. So NOI divided by cap rate, that's the value of my property. So it doesn't matter if all the, all the houses around me are dropping by 50, 60, 80%. All that matters to me is that if my operating income is staying strong and cap rates are staying strong, then the value of my multifamily is going to stay strong. It might even go up. So what tends to happen during a recession? A couple of things. One, well, on the negative side, people do lose their jobs. They do get their wages cut. So if you own multifamily, if you own any rentals, it's likely you're going to see a higher uh, vacancy rate. And even if it's not a physical vacancy rate, it's going to be what we call a higher economic vacancy rate which means maybe you have 96% of your units occupied, but if 10% of those people aren't paying, then it's really like having 86% of your your units occupied. So on the negative side, yes, you probably will have more people not paying. You probably will have some more vacancies, but typically you're going to have a larger pool of potential renters because during a recession, people are not able to pay for their houses. They're losing their houses. They have to move into a place. Maybe they're moving in with, with, uh, with roommates, which is actually good for us. It lowers our tenant base, but it actually makes our, our pool of tenants better because we now have two people paying the rent. But in general, we can expect that there's going to be strong demand during the recession. And strong demand leads to higher income. Higher income leads to higher net, op- not net operating income, which need, leads to higher values. Additionally, cap rates, so cap rates being kind of the, the multiplier in any market um, for the value of the property. We have th- these multipliers, and depending on what your market is and depending on, on when it is, we have these multipliers that determine, um, is your property going to be worth 20 times the income it's generating, or 30 times, or 15 times? Well, typically during recessions, while cap rates will get a little bit weaker, the multiplier will go down, typically that stays relatively strong based on lots of factors. People like real estate 
And for the reasons I mentioned earlier, during a recession, a lot of people are going to move money into real estate. Mm -hmm. And that multiplier is, is a result of demand. So when there's high demand for real estate, that multiplier tends to, to get higher. Um, and so during a recession, because a lot of people like real estate, they start to move their money out of the stock market, they move it into real estate, and that multiplier goes up. So during a recession, two things happen. One, our net operating income is going to stay strong because we have more demand. Again, market rents tend not to drop. So our, our income is going to stay strong. And in, in a lot of recessions, that cap rate, that multiplier is going to stay strong as well. So the value of our multifamily is going to stay strong. It might even go up during a recession compared to other asset classes. One of the things that we've seen over the last 70, 80, 90 years is that real estate kind of has its own cycle. It goes up and down just like the broader economy, but they don't necessarily work together. And so very possible that during, again, during a recession, multifamily can go up. So that's the reason I, I love multifamily. Um, and I think during what we're likely to see during the next phase of this cycle, some people think we're currently in, in the midst of a recession. I personally think we're not in the midst of a recession, but we will see one in the next year. Um, I think for a number of reasons, multifamily right now is poised to do really well during the next economic downturn. Yeah, and and uh, you know I saw that during the last downturn uh, in two thousand eight, owned a eight unit uh, townhouse complex and increased the NOI, like you mentioned, and I was actually able to sell it right in the midst of the downturn for a two hundred thousand dollar profit. So no question, I saw that you know happen like live. I'm curious about the two to four units. Uh, you talked about single family homes. You talked about the larger multifamily. What are your thoughts on the two to four units uh, in in the midst of a recession? Yeah, so it, it it's it, I'm going to say it depends. A two or four unit property that's surrounded by lots of single families is probably at, at, at more risk than a two to four unit in a large area that comprises a whole lot of, of two to four unit properties. And that's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, two to four unit properties are going to be comp like single family houses. So if an appraiser comes in and says, hey, um, you want a loan on this property, let's figure out the value of this property. For the most part, they're going to comp it based on other two to four units around it. Um, so it's going to be harder to get a loan on a two to four or a high loan on a two to four, even if you have renters in there paying an exorbitant amount, simply because the, the, the values are going to be more, more comped with, with smaller unit properties. That said, if you have to actually sell that property, it's going to be a lot easier to sell that property to another landlord based on the income because the landlord is going to look at that location as an income uh, property location. So while it may be harder to get loans on a two to four unit during a recession or harder to get big loans on a two to four unit, it's going to be easier to sell than a single family. So two to four units kind of play right in the middle there. Um, there are some benefits, there are some drawbacks, but I'd rather own a two to four unit during a recession than own a single family. In your book, uh, you mentioned uh, some people who thrived during the last downturn with multifamily. What, what, what lessons can we learn from them? What are some of the things that they did that allowed them to thrive during that recession? Yeah, absolutely. So I invested in my first two syndications as a limited partner, as a passive investor back in 2008. Um, I didn't know what I was doing then. I knew very little about real estate. I didn't know how to underwrite the deal, but these were both friends of mine that I trusted. And I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some money into their deals. One of them, I literally lost everything. It's the only real estate deal that I've ever done where I lost a lot of money. 
Um, that's not true. I've lost money on two deals, but this is this was one where I, it was the only deal I've lost everything I put in. And that's because this investor was banking on appreciation. Mm-hmm. He bought in Phoenix, Arizona, which is a very hot market leading up to 2008. Looking back, the underwriting didn't support a lot of rent growth. Basically, the underwriting was calling for the same thing that they had seen in that market for the last three or four years, which was huge appreciation, natural appreciation. Lots of people moving into the area, rents going up. And so they, they, they weren't doing a lot to support the value. Unfortunately, 2008 hit and the market collapsed. And my friend not only lost this building, but he lost most of his portfolio because most of his portfolio was based on appreciation, natural appreciation, not forced appreciation, where he goes in and he does a lot of renovation and, and he, he makes the, the, the building more attractive. He was just basing it on the fact that, well, we saw 10% appreciation last year and 10% appreciation the year before. Things are just going to keep going up. They didn't. And so the bank ended up taking back the property and, and investors lost everything. Compare that to the other investment I made, another friend of mine who bought in, I, it was somewhere in Texas. I don't remember exactly what city, it was either Houston or Dallas. Um, but he had a solid business plan that was based on one, it was conservative. So he, he recognized that we were heading towards a recession. And so he slowed down his, his, um, his estimation of rent growth. Um, he slowed down his estimation of cash flow. He had, he raised a lot of reserves. Um, and he basically said, I'm going to hold this property for five to 10 years, and I'm not going to expect it to make any more money in years one, two, three, than it did in the previous years, maybe even lose a little bit of money. Basically he was, he was creating an investment that was more a wealth preservation investment, a place to put your money. So you don't lose money. You may not make anything for three or five years, but you're not going to lose it as opposed to my first friend who basically said, I'm going to make you 20% returns in the next two years. He said, I may make, make you nothing, but I'm going to protect your cash. And he operated this, this property from that perspective as a way to protect your cash. He kept a lot of reserves. He was very conservative in, in his estimates. He had a long-term loan. That was actually the biggest thing. He had a loan that went out at least five years so that basically he didn't have to worry about a loan reset um, in the middle of a big recession. And so at the end of the day, I think it was 2013 that he cashed out. I didn't make a huge return. I think it was like 10, 11, 12%. I don't remember exactly. But I remember at the time thinking, this is awesome. Like during the 2008 recession, I made 12% compounded return, annual compounded return on real estate. And that actually was what got me really excited about multifamily. I didn't transition to multifamily for another four or five years, but that was the first time I really started thinking about multifamily as a great recessionary hedge. So kind of think of it as as the tale of the two investors. One is very starry-eyed and and expecting that the recession is not going to hurt him. And the other one who goes in much more conservative, much more circumspect, and thinks of real estate as an opportunity to protect wealth throughout the worst of that downturn so that we can live to fight another day. So speaking of which, I want to talk about the different classes of multifamily. So ABC class and, you know, our opinion has always been like, we like B and C class multifamily because when the recession comes, we want to be prepared for people to lose their jobs and actually move into our properties. Do you have a strong opinion about that? Yeah, absolutely. So A-class property. So when we talk about classes of properties, A-class tends to be the nicest property. Typically, these are properties that are fairly new. They have the highest end amenities. Basically, if they're, they're obviously the most expensive. People love A-class properties when the market's strong. When 
the market starts to turn and people see that there's economic risk. They're worried about losing their jobs. They're worried about their hours getting cut. They're worried about their salary getting cut. They're worried about maybe they're a small business owner and they're worried about their business not performing as well. They start to think more practically. They think, yeah, I love living in this nicest, newest complex, spending three or $4,000 a month, but is that practical? Mm-hmm. No, that might not be practical. So what do they do? They say, okay, I'm going to go live in another really nice place. It's not going to be as nice, but I'm going to save a whole bunch of money. So B-class properties tend to be the next step down. Now, what we see is that the difference between the difference in rent between A-class and B-class is much bigger than the difference in rent between B and C and C and D. So the biggest step down is A to B. So a lot of people who are practical during times of, of economic downturn are going to go from class A to class B. And so there's going to be a lot of lack of demand pressure on class A. Class A owners are going to are, are going to have trouble renting their units. And so I tend to stay away from class A investments during recessionary periods or leading up to recessionary periods, because that's where we're going to see the highest vacancy. That's where we're going to see the biggest hit in cap rates as well. Typically, what do investors do? Again, cap rates are driven by investor demand. Investors recognize that B-class and C-class properties are a lot stronger during recession, so they move their money out of A-class properties. So there's a lot less demand there. So cap rates, the multiplier, the multiplier drops, the cap rates go up. um, And now suddenly these properties are worth a lot. Relatively, they're worth a lot less. So A-class tends to be a a tough place to be during recessions. B-class, C-class tends to be a lot stronger. Now, when you get towards the bottom of the C-class, so C-minus class, D-class, we get into issues again. So this is these tend to be um, the renters that have uh, jobs that tend to be most sensitive to economic conditions. These are the folks that are most likely to get laid off first. These are the folks that are most likely to get their wages cut first. These are the folks that are most likely to uh, to get their hours cut first. So I also tend to stay away from kind of that lower C class and D class. So I agree with you 100%. During an economic downturn, solid B is my favorite. Strong C is great as well. Additionally, things like mobile home parks. So mobile home parks tend to be a a very strong blue collar type of of tenant. Um, Those are the folks that pay their rent every month. They they, uh, prioritize their rent every month. They tend to have jobs, um, while maybe not as high paying, tend to be pretty stable. And so during recessionary periods, I love mobile home parks. Now, the secret is mobile home park, living in a mobile home is no cheaper than living in an apartment. Um, if you do the math, it, it really is. It's about the same. But what we tend to see is the type of tenant in mobile home parks really prioritize their, their payment. They tend to be a, a little bit more independent. They like their space. They like their independence. And so mobile home parks, in my experience, tend to stay pretty strong during during recessionary periods. So yeah, solid B, C plus, mobile home parks tend to be my favorite investments during during recessions. What about lending? Now you've alluded to the fact that letting lending will get tighter with residential loans, but let's talk about, I mean, even with the COVID, the little blip recession with the COVID, we saw lending with commercial loans get much tighter too. So what are some of the things that people can do to be in the best position to actually be able to get the lending to buy the deals? Because when those A-class properties lose value, when those single family homes lose value, you want to be able to buy them up at a cheaper rate. So how do you get money? Yeah. So what I like to tell people is start early. Um, We might be a little bit late now, but there's still some good things people can do. Number one, always work on your credit. Always make sure your credit is as good as it can be because 
If you go back to 2008, 9, and 10, what we saw is there were people buying houses. There were people who were able to get loans. A lot fewer people. It was tough to get a loan. But those who were getting loans were the ones with the strongest credit. So these days, I, th- I think you can you can get a loan at a 620 credit score, a, a Fannie Mae, Freddie, Freddie Mac, FHA. I think it goes down to 620. I remember during the worst parts of 2008, you pretty much needed a 720 credit score to get a, a federally backed loan. Um, it was at least 660, but I think it was 720 there for a while. So make sure you have strong credit. Number two, increase your credit lines as much as possible now. So can, if you can take out a HELOC, take out a HELOC now. You don't have to take any money on it. Go apply for a HELOC, get approved for a HELOC. Don't take the money, but have it sitting there just in case. Raise your, your credit card limits. As long as you're one of those people, you're, as long as you're not one of those people who are going to spend every penny that you have access to, raise your credit card limits as much as you can so you have access to that cash. Again, even if you don't necessarily need it. If you have any debt that's going to come due in the next two to three years, because remember, it, we could be a year away from a recession. Typical recession lasts 18 to 24 months. So the next three years, could be pretty tough. So if you have any debt that's coming due in the next three years, you're not going to want to have to refinance in the next three years. So if you have any debt coming due in the next three years, I would say refinance now, even if it's higher interest rates than you might expect, if you can push the uh, the, the termination of that, that, that debt out to at least five years, that's important to do. Um, if you have any properties that you're not comfortable holding, for the next three to five years. Now's a great time to sell. Maybe you have a property that, that's kind of a dog. It doesn't generate the cash flow you were hoping it would. And you're like, yeah, at some point I'm gonna get around to selling it. Well, if you were planning to get around to selling it sometime in the next three to five years, now could be the best time to sell that property. And then build relationships. Now is absolutely the best time to build relationships. So like you mentioned, cash is king during a downturn. It can be really hard to get credit. Start, start building relationships with other investors who might have cash. What I found is the people that did the best during 2008, 9, 10, including me, did it because we partnered with other people. We were able to pool our resources. We were able to pool the things that we had going for us in a way that we could do deals that other people who were doing it on their own couldn't do. So now is a great time to build relationships, to find other people to partner with, um, and just to bolster your, your community and your network. And build relationships with all those investor agents that are going to have the access to off-market deals, the the commercial bankers who are going to give you 10% down, even in hard times. So it's building those relationships across the board, not just with partners um, that are, it always comes down to relationships, right? Success. Absolutely. The other thing I'll say is now is the perfect time to get back to the fundamentals. And I know people don't really know what that means. It sounds like just a cliche phrase, but what that means is get educated. Learn about how the industry works. So understand things like portfolio management. So so there's this field of of financial management called portfolio management. It's the way you diversify and you manage risk. So get familiar. Go pick up a book on portfolio management and risk management. Um, Learn about capital stacks. So learn about how debt and equity can work together to build great deals. There's a lot of theory behind debt and equity um, that allow you to basically keep your cost of capital down and make the most money. And if that made no sense to you, go pick up a book on capital stacks or go do a search on Google for capital stacks or debt or equity. Um, learn about how the government and, and how monetary policy works. So mm-hmm. I talked earlier about how the Fed can, can raise rates and lower rates um, and how they can increase the money supply or decrease the money supply. This impacts us as Americans. And so we should understand how it works so that we that way you don't have to listen to me 
for predictions, or we don't have to listen to you for predictions. People can make their own predictions. When you understand how the government works and how our money system works, you can make your own predictions. Learn about fiscal policy. So fiscal policy is taxation and how taxes work. And so figure out how taxes impact you. The biggest mistake I've made in my investing career is I didn't pay attention to taxes until I was way too old. Um, we always think making more money is great. Even if I pay more taxes, who cares? I've made more money. Well, what you learn as you get older is you're spending a lot of money on taxes. And when you understand how compounding works, every dollar that you spend on taxes could have been compounded and turned into a whole lot more money if you didn't spend it. So learn about those ways that one, you can lower your tax burden. And number two, you can defer your tax burden. So figure out ways that you can take every dollar that you would pay in taxes this year, figure out how to make them, how to pay them next year instead. And the next year, figure out how to pay the year after. We have the saying in real estate, defer, 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 die. And basically what that means is you put taxes off as far as you can. Eventually, if you die, well, those assets go to your heirs. And based on today's tax policy, they won't necessarily pay taxes on those. So in theory, you can potentially put off taxes forever if you do things right. So learn about tax policy. Learn about risk. Risk is a big thing. We don't talk enough about risk in this industry. People don't think enough about risk. Um, there's a lot of theory behind risk, but there's also a lot of tactical and practical things you can do to avoid risk. So, so do some research on risk. So what I'm telling people now is now is a great time to really get educated, to really get back to the fundamentals, to really learn how this whole investing thing works. Instead of just doing it, learn about how it works so that in your head, you can make these mental shifts. You can pivot when you need to pivot. You can understand where the economy might be going and where we're coming from and how you can best use your resources to not just, not just survive, but to thrive during, during down economic times. Jay, this has been an amazing interview and we're so grateful for your time. And for those of you who want to learn more about this, Jay also has a book called Recession Proof Real Estate Investing, um, which I imagine covers a lot of what we talked about and probably a lot more too. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me. The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.